We are in the first week of the new year. Happy New Year. Uh, this is always a time of grand comparisons. For the past few weeks, we've all seen the lists of the best songs or the best TV shows or the best books of 2019. Uh, because this is a new decade, I think there's even more of these lists, the best whatever of the, the past decade. Uh, I've also seen more of the time-based comparisons. Uh, I just saw yesterday someone point out that we are in 2020 as close now to 2050 as we are to 1990. Um, thanks for that. That, that, was, that kind of hurt. Um, but uh, the new year often draws out some more personal comparisons. Uh, we compare where we were in the last year to where we want to be in this upcoming year. Uh, and that's basically the, 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 the basis of, of a New Year's resolution. How can we take the bad from last year and make it the good of this year to come? And although these personal comparisons are often aspirational and, and good intention, uh, they can also cause sorrow during this time of year. Uh, we sometimes compare the prospects for this new year to the past, and, and the prospects appear to fall short. Um, or this past year may have been full of trials or, or illness or loss or other types of suffering. And though we hope that the new year brings a radical change, we often melt at the thought of facing another year of the same, or maybe even worse. So this time of year is hyper-focused on the balance of where we are now and where we want to be. And sometimes we struggle to find the right balance between the two. So tonight we're going to look at a passage from Romans chapter 8 that addresses this balance between what we are going through now and what lies ahead of us in the future. From this passage, we learn that instead of comparing our current trials and sufferings to the possible improvements that we can make in the next year, believers in Christ should compare our present sufferings to the guaranteed glory that we will share with Christ. With that comparison and the balance, the weight of our future glory lifts up the real and present burdens that we face. So the verses we'll be looking at in Romans chapter 8 can be found on page 944 in the Bibles around you. So we should turn there now. And we'll focus on verse 18 in chapter 8. But I'm going to draw on the context of the surrounding verses. Uh, so now I'll read from verses 18 through verse verse 18 through verse 23 in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the focal point in these verses is the future glory that is the hope of all believers, those who place their trust and faith in Jesus as their Savior. But suffering also plays a a prominent role in these verses. So tonight I'm going to walk through what these verses teach us about our present suffering, what they teach us about future glorification, and then what they teach us about the comparison between the two. These will be the main topics I'll cover, present suffering, future glorification, and comparing the two. So to begin, let's look at verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I want to start by focusing on three things about suffering that we can learn from this text and the surrounding verses. First, we learn that suffering should not be ignored. In verse 18, Paul starts with, for I consider. This phrase describes the use of rational thought to consider suffering and how it fits into God's eternal plan. One commentator notes that Paul often uses this same phrase in other passages to mean to realize from the standpoint of faith. It's often easier to ignore the suffering around us, to not talk about it. Uh, But suffering is real and extensive and should not be ignored. The Bible has a lot to say about suffering and perseverance, and we should think about how God wants us to approach it. And that's what we're doing tonight. It's what we did this morning as Jed preached in Psalm 73. So the second thing that we learn about suffering is that everyone and everything suffers. I know, not a very cheerful point, uh, but I think if we look a little deeper, uh, we can see some uh, room for encouragement here. In verse 20, we see that creation was subjected to futility. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve's sinful and rebellious actions brought about the curse of sin and death on all men, all women, and all of creation. The ground was cursed because of them, and the result is that all should return as dust to the ground. As a result, Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23 state that the whole of creation has been groaning together in pain, in that not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. What can we learn from this? Suffering is a shared experience. We groan and we suffer together. Suffering, by its nature, feels isolating. But when you suffer, you are not alone. You are surrounded by brothers and sisters who have also suffered to varying degrees. 
And this leads to a related point. We should help those who are suffering. Romans 12, 15 instructs us to weep with those who weep. At the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul describes God as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So we should be committed to listen when someone shares their burdens with us. Help when someone needs a lift. Stand up for someone who is being criticized and comfort those who feel down and alone. John Piper has summarized it in this way. Pain is pain, no matter who causes it. We are all sinners. Empathy flows not from the causes of pain, but from the company of pain. And we are all in it together. The third thing we learn from this passage about suffering is that suffering does not diminish God's plan. Let's look again at the verses describing how all creation groans and suffers together. In verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. Verses 20 and 21, for the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What ties all of these verses together is longing and hope for freedom and redemption through the suffering and pain. In the original Greek, the the phrase waits with eager longing in verse 19 actually means to stick your head out as if on tiptoes in anticipation of something. But I think the the childbirth analogy in verse 22 is the strongest. What better image is there of the simultaneous presence of pain and hopeful longing than childbirth? Though there is suffering now in God's plan, it all points forward to the day when there is no more suffering, when believers are in glory with Christ. And this brings us to to our next major topic, the future glory of believers. Let's look again at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I want to shift now and focus on two things that we can learn from this passage about this glory that is to be revealed. But before we do this, let's recognize that this future glory is for believers, those who have placed their trust 
in Jesus as their personal Savior. Earlier in chapter 8, it's clear that Paul is addressing those who are in Christ Jesus. We see that in verse 1. Or those who are adopted children of God and heirs of God, verse 17. If you're not sure if this describes you or if you have questions on what it means to be, be a believer in Christ, please ask somebody who you came with tonight or we'd be happy to talk about this more at the door after the sermon. And for now, the bottom line is this. Believers are those who turn from their sin and trust that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of their sins. You should believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Turning back to the first point about the future glory described in verse 18. Just as the present suffering Paul talks about is real and should not be ignored, the future glory for believers is real and should be longed for. Paul's description of the future glory is extremely personal and physical in nature. In verse 18, Paul says that the glory is to be revealed to us. In some translations, we, we see it uh, translated as it is to be revealed in us. Verse 21 states that creation itself will be set free from corruption or decay to share in the freedom of the children of God. These verses are talking about glorification, which is the final step in the redemption of all believers. Glorification involves the redemption of our bodies from sin and decay. This happens on the last day when Jesus returns, we, when we will receive resurrection bodies and death itself is destroyed. This is when we see a new heaven and a new earth setting the current creation free from corruption. Let's consider a few key verses on glorification. Colossians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The current process of sanctification draws us more in line with Christ, but God's ultimate goal when Christ returns is to share Christ's glory with all of his adopted children. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Colossians 3, 3 through 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
Matthew 13, 43 says that glorified believers will shine like the sun, just as Jesus shone like the sun at his transfiguration. These verses not only describe how glorification is eternally good, but they emphasize that it is the physical and real future for believers. And this brings us to our second point about our future glory. For believers, this glory is guaranteed. Let's look at verses 29 and 30 in Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a summary of the redemptive plan of salvation, and this plan certainly ends with glorification. These verses describe a chain of connected categories, and if you fall into one of these categories, you fall into all of them. Unlike a New Year's resolution that may or may not last beyond the first month of the year, or maybe not even beyond the first week, the glorification in store for believers is guaranteed. We can rely on our Father God who always keeps his promises to ensure that we will reach this future, real, and eternal glory. And this leads us to our final topic tonight. We've talked about suffering and glorification as found in Romans 8, 18 and the surrounding verses. But the main element of verse 18 is the comparison of these two. Let's look at verse 18 one more time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The phrase not worth comparing stems from the Greek word axios. The, figure, the figurative concept here is of a scale on an axis with a weight on one side that moves or tips the balance. Here, the weight of our future glory is described as far surpassing the weight of our present sufferings. Paul draws on this same analogy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, one of my favorite passages. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's important to notice that the comparison of glorification to suffering does not deny our current trials. Verse 18 does not say that our suffering goes away. Instead, the reality of our suffering is recognized but as if on a scale, it's lifted in the air and from our shoulders by the weight of our promised future glory. As I pictured this image, I thought of when one of my kids comes to me in the middle of the night with a, with a bad dream. It's so hard. Bad dreams are so real and so troubling. 
What do you do? Um, one way I've learned to help my kids through bad dreams is to create a comparison for them to think about. I say, those dreams are hard to deal with, I know. But do you know those bad dreams really don't stand a chance when faced with something much stronger? You know what that is? Eyelids. If you're having a bad dream, just opening your eyelids is strong enough to end the dream. If eyelids can beat a bad dream, they must not be that strong after all. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, of course, but it does emphasize the concept of shaping your thinking about suffering through a comparison to what is greater. And in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 8, we see, well, in, in verse 18, it makes it abundantly clear that our future glory far outweighs our present suffering. And then in verses 31 and 32, we see that the true power that stands behind the weight of glory, what lifts the burden of our present sufferings, we see that in verses 31 and 32. Let's look there. What then shall we say to these things? It's the summary of everything that has come before that we were just talking about. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In this verse, we see the full power of God is on the side of his children. Though there is suffering now, his promised and guaranteed future glory outweighs this, that suffering and lifts it up. We just need to open our eyes and see the reality of our promised future glory before us. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you tonight. We glorify your holy name. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered for our salvation. As we presently face suffering, help us to look forward to the eternal glory that you have for your children. We are thankful that you are for us and thankful that you graciously gave us Jesus to die on the cross and rise again so that we could be guaranteed this future glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.